Well, good morning, Christ Chapel. Great to be with you. Hello to all of you joining us at the West Campus, the Hive, and from where I'm standing, hello to the North Campus, uh, which you would know as the Fort Worth Campus. Uh, so glad that uh, you've joined us for worship. I know if you're joining us in the sanctuary, it might feel a bit different, but it's not going to feel different for long because we are going to do what we always do at Christ Chapel, and that is study God's Word. So if you will, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16, please. Uh, Matthew chapter 16, it's important that you uh, see the scriptures for yourself uh, because we always want you to know that what we say from this pulpit comes from God's word. We want you to be able to validate yourself uh, what we say by what God says so that you don't hear one thing from the pulpit and then you go back and you read the fine print and you're like, well, hold on here. <laughs> that says something different than what you said, because we've all experienced that before, where we were told one thing, but then the fine print said something a little bit different. Maybe you've experienced that. Uh, maybe you planned a vacation, or maybe you've even been able to take a vacation. Maybe you, th you thought about going someplace where it got below 80 degrees for more than one hour, you know, a, a day, and you've gotten away this summer, and you booked this wonderful vacation. It, it, maybe you've taken it. And it doesn't matter, though, you, you booked it, and then all of a sudden you realize there were all of these hidden fees that were there. It doesn't matter if it was a, an airline, if it was a car rental, if it was a hotel, there were always hidden fees. This has happened to you, I know, where you were told one price, and then when you got the bill, you're like, hold on, what is this resort fee? What is this administrative fee? What is this surcharge? What is this gratuity? I mean, they, they, they give you all these different synonyms for hidden fees. <laughs> it's just these extra costs that you're like, well, hold on. I didn't agree to paying that much. I, I, I thought it was just this much. And then you get it and it's added on, which really can make your vacation a bummer if you think about it. Because once you, once you book it and find out that it's more than you expected, you either, maybe like me, spend your vacation bitter, you know, you're, you're just not excited because you're like, gosh, this costs way more. Or you're wondering the whole time, was this worth it? Like, should I have signed up for this? Is it really worth the cost? See, sometimes I think people think about Christianity or, or the Christian life or their walk with Christ, much like this planning of a vacation. They have this dream destination where they want to go. And we all accepted that, or hopefully we've accepted that free gift, that, that ticket to heaven that Jesus has paid in full for us. And then we expect, because that ticket was free, that the, the trip, the journey there is going to be problem-free until we get to that big cruise ship in the sky. It's all smooth sailing to there. But we realize that it's not like that. We didn't expect there to be hardship. We didn't expect there to be suffering. We didn't expect that there would be persecution. We didn't expect that there would be ridicule. And sometimes we get caught in this mindset where we say, hold on, these were hidden costs that I did not agree to. This is not what I signed up for because we didn't expect it. Therefore, we might grow bitter about it or we wonder, is it even worth it? 
But what I want to show you today from Matthew chapter 16 is that there are no hidden costs when it comes to Christianity. And everything that you give to it, you will be repaid. And not only repaid in full, but will be well overpaid in what you put in to follow Christ. And that's what we're going to talk about today in Matthew chapter 16. We're going to begin in verse 21. You also need a copy of your sermon notes uh, because there will be things that are on there that will not come up on the screens. And I want you to follow along because we're going to pick right up where we left off. Last week, we remember we were in Caesarea Philippi where Peter has this great confession of who Jesus is. Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? Then he turns the question on them. Who do you say that I am? And remember, Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. This is this huge epiphany to him. And it's really a, a, a mile marker, a milestone in the gospel of Matthew. And Jesus affirms, Peter, you're exactly right. That is exactly who I am. And upon that confession, I will build my church. And that confession that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, is not only what he's been building his church off of, it's what our church is built off of. That is the foundation of our church, of Christ chapel. We base everything on he is the Christ, the son of the living God. So he affirms that. And because he affirms that, because there is that confession, the disciples actually get this is who Jesus is. That is a turning point in the gospel of Matthew because there's a huge literary marker in Matthew chapter 16, verse 21. I want you to see it. Look at it with me. Verse 21 says, from that time, or another way to say it is after that time, after he is proclaimed as the Messiah, the Christ, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. As I said, this is a huge literary marker in the gospel of Matthew that Jesus now begins this death march to the cross. And this is not something that he only says one time. It's actually something that he tells his disciples five times that is explicitly recorded in scripture. But he's also, I'm assuming, he's probably telling his disciples that more often than is recorded there in the gospel of Matthew. So this is something, he is not hiding the cost that he is going to pay in order to go to the cross. But this is incongruent with Peter's understanding of who Jesus is. I mean, he just proclaimed that, Jesus, you're the, you're the Messiah. You're the anointed one. You're the king. This is not what kings do. This is not the way of the king. Therefore, in verse 22, it says, And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Can you imagine this? How uncomfortable that was? You're like, oh, Peter, please, no. And Peter began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This is beneath you, Lord. Far be it from you. This shall never happen to you. So Peter goes and takes him aside. He takes charge here. And he says, this is not the way of the Messiah. This is not the way of the king. The king doesn't go to Jerusalem to die. The king goes to Jerusalem to reign. 
that's what you're supposed, that's who you are. And he understands that Jesus is the Messiah. He just doesn't understand his means. He doesn't understand his mission. He doesn't understand that Jesus can have the cross, I mean, can have the crown at any time. But if he doesn't go to the cross, he doesn't get us. And that's, that's what he wanted. He, he wanted to pay for our sins. So Peter, in that incongruency, ends up rebuking, very strong word, Jesus. Here's how Jesus responds in verse 23. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. I don't think I'd ever want to be told that by Jesus. <laughs> get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And immediately, Peter goes from hero to zero. He was the one who had, had this great confession, and now Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. This is another reason why I don't think that when Jesus says, on that rock, I will build my church. I don't think he's talking about Peter uh, personally. I think he's talking about the confession. And I also think that he's not calling Peter, per se, personally, Satan. What he's saying is Peter is being used as an instrument by Satan to deter him from going to the cross. Remember, that was what Satan was trying to do back in the temptation in Matthew chapter 4. In Matthew chapter 4, remember, he says, hey, I will give you all the kingdoms of the world. Just bow down now. Just, just, just don't go toward the cross, and you can have the crown. And Jesus says, that's, that's not it. You see, Jesus knew that there was a cost to get the crown. That was the cost, that he was going to march toward Jerusalem. And it's hard for Peter, Peter to understand. And guess what? It's hard for us to understand. It's hard for me to understand. We think that if we follow this king of glory, then we should have a glorious path. It should be simple. It should be easy. It shouldn't be this, this hard thing. And when we sign up to follow him, we go, this is smooth sailing, right? No suffering involved. And yet there's plenty of suffering involved. There was suffering for him, and there's suffering for those who follow him. And some of you are thinking, hold on, Cody, I didn't sign up for this. I signed up for the prince and princess package, you know, the, the one with, with pampering and privileges, with the lavender-scented pillow. That's what I signed up for, not this. The problem is that's not his way. And if we say we're following him, then we follow in his footsteps. That's what he's saying here. You see, it's a fixed cost. It's non-negotiable. There, there is no base package. And you go, well, if you want to upgrade, then there's more suffering. And you go, I'll take the base package. It's not like that. This is a one-size-fits-all cost to following Jesus. So what I want to do today is I want to tell you what that cost is. I want to explain what it is as he explains it here for his disciples, and then I want to show you that it's worth it. It's worth every penny, every tear, every effort that you're going to make because it will be repaid and it will be overpaid 
as you're repaid in full. So let's walk through it together. But the first thing that I want you to see is following Christ means following him to death. Following Christ means following him to death. Now, we've all experienced doing things to death. If you think about that phrase, you have used that phrase at some time in your life. You have said that you were scared to death or you were worried to death or as my sons say, and it is annoying, they are bored to death. We've, we've all experienced doing things to death, but we haven't thought about following Christ to death. But that's exactly what he says in verse 24. Look at verse 24. It says, then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. A very morbid look at what it is to be a friend of Jesus. You know, you've sang that hymn before, what a friend we have in Jesus. You know, and you go like, man, this friendship is like one where we carry our crosses together. Like, we, you know, this is not exactly coffee with friends, you know. It, this, this is costly. And the picture that he's giving, they would have known exactly what he's talking about when he says, take up your cross. He's, he's painting the picture here of Roman crucifixion. And Roman crucifixion was something that was reserved for the lowest of low. That was not a, a white-collar sentence. Th this was reserved for the lowest-class citizens. This was reserved for, for slaves in Roman times. And it was very shameful. See, we always think about, and, and, and it's natural to, to understand crucifixion as painful. But we hardly think about it as shameful. But that is exactly what they were trying to do with these criminals. They weren't just trying to kill them. They were trying to shame them. They were trying to embarrass them. And that, see, that's the picture that he has there when he says, take up your cross. Uh, probably what it looked like, it may have looked a little bit different than what the, uh, this is not very uh, cinematography kind of things. It's not what it looks like in the movies. But this is probably the, the more accurate way that it would have happened in those days, meaning to carry your cross, you would have been strapped to a cross beam, not the vertical part, but just the cross beam. And you would have been, you would have been uh, roped in there. You would have been tied to it because you're going to drop it. I mean, think about how many times, remember, Jesus was beaten before he has to carry that through the streets. So you would have been tied to it and carried that cross beam in a very public way. And we know that Simon of Cyrene had to help, come and help Jesus and carry his cross for him. So, so we know that people would have been watching this death march to his ultimate death. And then when they take the, those criminals and put them on the cross, it probably was not up on a hill as we sing about or has been in movies. Uh, it probably would have been down on a road uh, eye level, you would have been eye to eye with that criminal. One, so that people passing through would know, do not mess with the Roman government. 
but also so that you would connect with them personally and feel embarrassed and shamed. You see, the whole idea of crucifixion was this idea that the Roman government has subjugated you to themselves. They had beaten you and killed you into submitting to their rule and reign. And obviously, that would have been unwillingly. Nobody would willingly give themselves to that kind of treatment, that kind of shame, that kind of death. Yet, what does Jesus say here? He's saying, willingly, those who follow me will deny themselves, willingly take up their cross, and willingly follow me. You see, that's why I told you, following Christ means following him to death. We are walking in his ways. And we're not doing it because we've been subjugated to him. We are willingly submitting our lives to him. The Roman government was different because he's not asking us to carry it in a shameful way. He's asking us to carry it in a way where we're following after him. That's, that's the beautiful thing about this, what Jesus' call is to his disciples, is he's not asking us to do anything that he hasn't already done. I mean, isn't this exactly what he did? I mean, think about it. When he says, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow him, isn't that what he did? He denied himself. We know that he took on flesh. Uh, he, he could have stayed in heaven, in glory, in perfection, and instead he took on flesh to dwell among sinners like you and me. He denied himself. He took up the cross. That's very obvious. We've been talking about it. And he followed the Lord's will for him. Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, not my will, but thy will be done, Lord. So he has followed this way. And anyone who follows him follows his path. And so what I would like to do is just walk through those three verbs very quickly and try to put some, some meat on those bones as what does that look like if we call ourselves disciples, if we call ourselves Christians, what does it look like Monday morning to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him? Because again, remember, these are fixed costs. You, you can't say you're a Christian and not be a follower of Jesus. That's why I put the, the title of the sermon I said is the cost of Christianity. Because we can't say we're a Christian, but I'm not going to follow Jesus. I'm not, I'm not going to deny myself. I'm not going to take up my cross. I'm not going to follow. You, you, you don't get the destination without the journey. If you're going to follow him in glory, then you follow him in death. That's, that's, that's his way. And so let's walk through it, these three verbs, and then I'll try to give you some applications uh, very quickly. So the first one is deny yourself. Just deny yourself. I, I love how Jesus just starts off real easy, right? I mean, who is the hardest person in the world to deny? Yourself. I mean, just at, after lunch, a, after dinner, try to deny yourself dessert. I, I can't do it. I mean, I, 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 it is so hard, and you can bite your tongue, and you can sit on your hands, and it might work for one night, 
or one meal, and then uh, tomorrow I'm done. I'm like, I can't do it that long. We are the hardest people to deny. We can't deny. We can justify anything that we want to do. I, I, I will probably, at, at lunch today, I will, after lunch, I will probably have a dessert. And deep down in my mind and in my heart, I will probably say, Cody, you deserve that. You preached hard. <laughs> you have yourself some dessert. See, we can justify anything. I mean, because you're like, Cody, it's not that hard. Just, you know, preach. It's not that big of a deal. But we can justify whatever we want. We think we are owed something. We think we deserve something. And we are always the exception to the rule. Not everybody else is, but we are. You see, we are the hardest people to deny. And Jesus says, if you're going to follow him, the first person you have to deny is yourself. And here's why. Because it goes back to that idea of submission. Because if I do not deny myself, then who is the authority? I am. I am the authority. I am the exception to the rule. I make the rules. And to deny myself says I am not the authority. I am not in charge. I submit to a different authority, and I submit to God. And that's why Jesus starts there, because I think it's about authority, of who is authoritative in your life. And so in order to deny yourself, here's what that means. You're going to have to die to your innate desires, which conflict with God's desires for you. You're going to have to die to your innate desires, which conflict with God's desires for you. And I want to define what I mean by innate, because when I talk about innate, what I, what I mean is the, the desires that you're born with. Certainly, there are I, a synonym I played with there is natural. And I didn't want to use natural, although I'm talking about it. I didn't want to use natural uh, because there are natural desires of you're hungry, you're thirsty, you're cold. Oh, those are natural desires too. Like you, you want to be warm, you want to be fed, et cetera, et cetera. I'm talking about those innate desires that you're born with. And guess what? We are born with a selfish nature. That's what I mean by innate you are born with innate selfish desires where you want the world to revolve around you. And guess what? I was born the same way. I want the world to revolve around me. And I'm going to have to die to that desire that, guess what, Cody? The world doesn't revolve around you. I am not authoritative. Everybody is not bending and bowing to my desires and my will and my wants because, see, if they did, then that would be in direct conflict with God's desires for me. We see a great picture of what this looks like, those desires in conflict in Philippians chapter 2. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 2 through 5, Paul tells us, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. That is tough stuff. That's not easy. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. Again, hard stuff. How do you do that? Well, 
you've got to have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. You've got to have Christ's mind in order to consider others better than yourselves. See, the innate desire is you're better than everybody else. And he's saying that's why you have to deny yourself. And so let me just be very practical for you. Um, this isn't going to solve all your problems, but this will help. Something that I've found, and I don't win all the time. But when we talk about desires, oftentimes desires are impulsive. You, you act on them immediately. You feel this desire. You, you, you're, impulsively, you react to something. So here's what I recommend is pause. Just pause. When you have a desire, just pause and take it to the Lord. And go, Lord, I have a desire for this. Is, does this match up with your mind? Does this match up with what you desire for me and for those around me? So for instance, if I am uh, getting impatient with my boys and I want to lash out at them, I'm probably not considering them better than myself. Okay, I'm probably not living out Philippians chapter 2. I need to pause and I need to step back rather than impulsively going, would you just stop that or whatever they're doing? Pause and pull back. It doesn't matter what those desires are. Rather than acting on those impulses, pause and say, Lord, I need to compare my mind and my desire with your mind. And how does that match up? Because his mind is going to lead what's best for you, what's best for those around you, and what's best for his glory. And so die to those innate desires which directly conflict uh, with his desires for you. The second one is take up your cross. Take up your cross. It's that picture of being tied to that cross beam. Your hands are tied. You're going to take up your cross. Now, I want to be clear. Uh, Here's what he's not saying first. He's not talking about little annoyances or pet peeves, okay? Sometimes sometimes we talk about, you know, oh, well, that's just my cross to bear. We talk about it very lightly, you know, like the the Starbucks guy, you know, gave you foam on your no-foam latte, and you go, my cross to bear, you know? That's not what he's talking about here, okay? It's a little more significant than that, nor is he saying that you've got to carry the cross that Christ carried for you. His cross was sufficient to pay for your sins. You are not called to carry your cross to pay for your sins. Only he could do that for you. What he's talking about in carrying your cross is a very public confession of your allegiance to him, regardless of the consequences, regardless of what anyone says. He says, Declare your allegiance for me publicly. Remember that this was a very public uh, procession of the cross. When, when you were being crucified, you were paraded through the streets. Everyone knew who you were submitting to. That's what he's calling you to do. Make it a public confession that you follow him. So in order to take up your cross, you're going to have to die to your image and accept God's identity for you. Die to your image, what everybody else thinks about you, 
and accept your identity. Accept who God says that you are rather than investing your life in who others say that you are. See, we get really wrapped up in that of what other people think about us, and I do all, all the time. And what I need to be concerned with is who God says that I am, because that is who I want to put on display is Christ in me, Christ in you, publicly pledging my allegiance to him. And the best way I can think to do that is to understand who God says that we are. And there's a really interesting verse that I think pairs this nicely in Galatians chapter 1, verse, 1, uh, verse 10. It says, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? It's that idea of the, the image versus identity. Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Who he says that I am is his servant. Remember, it goes back to that idea of submission. Who is in authority over our lives? And if I see myself, and if we can see ourselves as servants of the Most High God, as first and foremost, then that will help us die to the image that we want to project and accept our identity. See, we all have titles in our lives. And that, that title uh, is, I mean, certainly man, woman, husband, wife, father, mother. Then you go into the workplace and career. You've got titles there. And based on those different titles, you come with expectations. Because I am this title, other people should respect me and treat me this way. The way that we need to walk into our homes, into our businesses, into a room is I am a servant of the Most High God. It doesn't matter how anybody sees me. It doesn't matter my expectations. It's how I'm treated. It's how I treat other people. That's, that's what I've got to die to is how other people see me and go, this is who God says I am. It doesn't matter how anybody sees me. I'm here to serve because isn't that what he did for us? He came to serve. Not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. If we're going to follow him, then we're going to follow him and be a servant to all. And then finally, the last one is follow Christ. Follow Christ. He says, you're going to have to follow me. And what I love about this theologically is that Christ is alive. Amen? Right? He is alive, and he's living, and he's active, and he can be followed, not then, but he can even be followed today. And he says, come and follow me daily, step by step. And so in order to follow him, you're going to have to die to your own way and submit to God's direction for you. Die to your own way and submit to God's direction for you. When we go our own way, I'll tell you where that ends up, in the weeds. We end up in the weeds all the time. And we've got to submit ourselves to following his way. I love what Proverbs chapter 3 says. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart, and don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Because the way of the cross 
doesn't make sense to come back all the way back to, back to Peter where we started today. It doesn't make sense. Whoa, 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 hold on. Not you, Lord. The Messiah, the anointed one, doesn't go to the cross. Don't trust in your own understanding. Acknowledge him in all your ways, and he will make your path straight. We are called to do the exact same thing that Peter is called to do, because remember what Jesus said is, anyone who follows after me must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And here's the good news. The good news is that if you follow him to death, then you follow him to life. You follow him to life. And that's what uh, Jesus ends up going on and saying in verses 25 to 28. He says, for whoever, so anyone can follow him, and therefore whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a person if they gain the whole world and they forfeit their soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. See, what Jesus says here is he, he outlines the cost of not following Jesus. And he says, for those who don't, you're going to forfeit your soul, which I think is such a brilliant comparison here. Because who appears like they're losing at that time? Jesus. The people carrying the cross through the streets, they are the ones who appear like they're losing. And he says, no, the ones who are losing are the ones who in this world appear like they're winning. And in the end, they're going to forfeit. They're going to lose their soul which he's talking about the dichotomy of, of a person here, the dichotomy of human beings. You have a natural part, and you have a spiritual, eternal part. The soul, this, this suke, where we get our word psych, psychology, the psyche from, that's the Greek word here. And he's talking about that immaterial part. And he says, what can you exchange for your soul? You can't exchange anything for it. That's the only thing that will last. So don't try to save your life here because you're going to end up forfeiting or losing your soul then. And he is going to come and repay everything. And like I said, overpay what you've paid to follow him. And what I love too, just as a quick aside, is he validates his words to his disciples here. He says, some of you will not taste death before you see the man, son of man coming in his glory. Now that could either be the resurrection that could be the second coming of Christ, or that could be what comes right after this, which is the transfiguration, which I think that's exactly what he's talking about, which he says, let me show you what I'm talking about. And Peter, James, and John, he shows them his glory and says, this is what I'm talking about. See, I, I, I'm, I'm telling you the truth, that if you follow me to death, you'll follow me to life, because guess what? Jesus isn't the only one there at the transfiguration. Who else is there? Moses and Elijah. Sinners saved by the grace of God. And he says, you follow me to death, you follow me to life. You see, Christ Chapel, there are no hidden fees. He tells us what the cost is of following him. 
And because there are no hidden fees, there are no hidden followers either. He is calling us to lay it all down to follow him. In the Lord's army, there is not a division of the secret service. He says, anyone, that's you, that's me, who wants to follow after me in life, then you're going to follow me in death. So deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for your word to us. Lord, I thank you that you don't call us to go anywhere or do anything that you haven't done yourself. You went to the cross for our sake. You showed us the way of what it looks like to deny yourself. And you followed after the Father's will. And so, Lord, would we submit our lives to you? Lord God, any place that we're holding back, would we stop these crazy negotiations with you of saying, Lord, if you'll do this for me, then I'll do that for you. Lord, would we lay our life down for you because you laid down your life for us? And in so doing, Lord God, would we find the resurrected life, not only in eternity, but would we find it now here as we follow you day by day and step by step? We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.